0: Hi, welcome to Mind the Disruption. I'm Bernice Yenful. I'm a PhD student and public health practitioner working to move knowledge into action for better health for everyone. On this podcast, I chat with community organizers, public health professionals, academics and more who have a key thing in common, their disruptors. They're people who refuse to accept things as they are, passionate about health for all and are pursuing it with the tenacity, a courage and a deep conviction that a better world is possible. In season one, we're talking about creative discontent, what it means to look around us, see something that needs to be changed, something that is unfair and just, and then taking bold action despite the resistance we might face. In each episode, we hear from a disruptor who has done just that in different areas. Work, food, whiteness, migration, and much more. And we hear their personal journeys. Then we dive into a reflective conversation about what all this means for public health. Wherever we find ourselves in research, policy, or practice, how do we break from the status quo and move forward with boldness?
1: This podcast is made and brought to you by the National Collaborating Centre for Determinants of Health. We support the public health field to move knowledge into action to reduce health inequities in Canada. We're hosted by St. Francis Xavier University, we're funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada, and we are one of six national collaborating centres for public health working across the country. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of our funder or host. We are located in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Two
2: days later, when they got out of the hospital and returned to work, they came back to the farm and their bags were packed. They were being deported.
0: You just heard from our disruptor for today's show, Sarome Ro. Serome uses she, her, and they, them pronouns. Sarome is a migrant worker and organizer. She unites with other migrants to win immigration and migrant worker justice. Migrants are people who live on lands that are different than the ones they were born or grew up in. There are many reasons why migrants may choose to come to a place like Canada. A few examples include those who come to study such as current or former international students, work in sectors such as agriculture and care work, and seek asylum, such as refugees. The vast majority of migrants in Canada arrive through legal, predetermined pathways that are set by the federal government. Most of these immigration pathways are temporary and precarious, which means migrants can work or study in Canada, but cannot stay here permanently and do not have access to many of the rights and protections that permanent residents and citizens in Canada often take for granted that are so important for our health, like being safe at work and being able to access healthcare without paying large bills. And while some of these temporary immigration pathways are increasing rapidly, such as temporary work permits, there are inadequate mechanisms for granting migrants full and permanent immigration status. As a result, many migrants lose their immigration status and become undocumented. Cerome, along with other migrant organizers, tackle this temporariness within the immigration system. To do so, they call for full and permanent immigration status for all migrants and undocumented peoples. By calling for status for all, they are also calling for health and well-being for all, since, as we will explore in this episode, full and permanent immigration status is a foundational determinant of health. Sarom and I talked about her journey in this incredible work. And later, I chat with Erica DiRuggiero and reflect on what we heard from Sarom. Erica is a dedicated mentor, teacher, and public health researcher with a focus on decent work and global health. In chatting with Erica, we talk about the global nature of labor, what it means to collect good data about employment and about the collective responsibility we have as public health practitioners and community members. Listen to and support migrant workers. I was curious to hear from Sarome about what shaped her to become the organizer she is and how her early experiences inspired her work. Can you take me back to when you first got involved with migrant justice organizing? Was there a particular moment for you that sparked that desire or interest to get engaged?
2: Yes, I was 19 at that time, and I was inspired, namely, by the work of the Black Panther Party, Ooh. and was beginning to um you know learn the the language and the kind of like analysis to assess the situation that people like me were facing, but this was largely you know in in books, and then I began thinking about how do I put this in into practice, and one of those ways is to join an organization. Right, join with others like you, join with the people who you know are fighting for the same cause and advancing the kind of like same struggle um, to figure it out together because you know we cannot even come up with the best political analysis in a silo, right? The kind of strongest is one that is iterative of the base, right? Of the people directly, right? And so began thinking about that and joined an organization in Toronto called No One Is Illegal. Okay. Um, and began to get involved in just in very early stages in campaigns around access without fear policies in the city, as well as supporting our brother, sister, siblings who were migrant detainees.
0: No One Is Illegal is an international network of grassroots migrant justice organizers and allies who support undocumented peoples through direct action, collectivism, and anti-oppression. So what was it about the Black Panther Party in particular that inspired you?
2: One of the things that really called to me was the fact that they situated the kind of like larger uh, liberation struggle of Black people as an internationalist struggle. Uh, One that could not be won without the direct participation of oppressed peoples everywhere. That this wouldn't be something just, you know, relegated to what we would now, you know, consider so-called North America. Right. That there are oppressed people globally and that the way that we can together free ourselves is to join struggles together and that really inspired me. I grew up in a neighborhood in Toronto that was considered that is to this day considered you know so-called high risk um, which is just coded language generated by like a lot of like anti-black racism Mm -hmm. and um, you know when I think my friends and I were trying to figure out our situations together. These kinds of texts were very useful for us um, to kind of think about why it is that we are going to school hungry, or that many of our friends and classmates were being, you know, streamed into, you know, a different applied exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Um, or that there was a school resource officer on school, and that kind of policing started to really have devastating.
0: As a student, Sarone began to understand that discrimination and racism were behind the streaming practices in her high school in Toronto. Streaming is an educational practice that divides high school students into taking either hands-on applied courses or entering an academic track set for post-secondary education. In 2021, the Ontario Ministry of Education announced plans to end academic and applied streaming in all grade 9 courses. As of 2022, no formal plans to stop streaming in grade 10 courses have been announced. Research shows that youth who are racialized, experiencing poverty, and from some non-white immigrant groups, are more likely to be in applied courses, limiting their opportunities for university education. You can learn more about the practices of streaming in schools and its effects on educational and other types of inequities in the book, Restacking the Deck, Streaming by Class, Race and Gender in Ontario Schools by Clanfield and colleagues. Now back to Sarom, who is talking about their experiences living and going to school in a so-called
2: high-risk
0: neighbourhood in Toronto.
2: So, so I think that kind of, you know, seeing what we were facing. And then being confused, asking these questions to kind of like get more political clarity. And one of the very impactful to this day, culturally and politically, um, uh, resources were uh, the work of uh, the Black Panther Party.
0: I know in my own life, reading books, resources have been kind of a lifeline, right? Helping me make sense of my situation, helping me think about what could be possible, what could be different. And it sounds like for you, kind of immersing yourself in readings about these issues and the work of the Black Panther Party were really critical.
2: They were. And that had its own limitations, I realized, which was that sometimes if like, you know, the, the kind of text and like the theory is detached mm. from the everyday realities of our people. Then they don't hold the kind of weight that it could. And also my personal experience may not be the, you know, singular and only universal one. Right. And, you know, coming together with others, joining organization, right? Um, debating ideas, um, coming up with plans together, struggling together is how we kind of advance the work that we're doing because When you come as a collective, your individual story becomes enmeshed with those of others and together a synthesis of that means that we are in collective, which means that some of my experiences are different from the experiences of others in the room. And that's okay. That's actually productive tension. And that is also how uh, we can shape our plans for action as well, building from the bottom up. Right. Only we as oppressed people, as, you know, working class racialized migrants, only we can together shape what we uh, want the future to look like. Um, And the possibilities are um, incredible. I mean, Angela Davis has this quote where she says, you know, it is only in collectivities that we find reservoirs of hope and optimism and in a world where uh, things can be so cruel that kind of hope and optimism is what keeps us going and where do we find that we find that not only within ourselves but ourselves in relation to others like us
0: yeah absolutely and i love what you said about productive tension i think that's so powerful and so can you tell me a little bit about um how you went from learning trying to gain as much information as you could to organizing so what was that like so that shift from I'm interested in this. I want to make sense of my situation and what my friends are experiencing to I'm going to get involved. What was that like?
2: I went to an event first, um, got connected to um, one of the uh, members of No One Is Illegal and then soon after uh, joined the organization.
0: Can you take me back to that first event for a moment when you were hearing people speak? Was it a moment of realization for you? Like, yes, yes. I agree. I want to be involved. What were you thinking or feeling at the moment at that first event?
2: Exactly. There is a lot of power in also witnessing, like bearing witness, but also um, feeling seen. When you join with others like you, um, you're able to see that um, you're not alone. Um, It seems very simple, but I think there is a a real power in that, which is you begin to see that um, your pain your um, isolation, your heartbreak are not just yours, but that they are shared. It feels really good. Nerve wracking, you know, butterflies in the stomach, but feels really good to just uh, join with others like you, even if you don't have the language or, you know, even the familiarity of organizing. Um, there is always a place to, you know, start organizing where you are and find others who want to do that with you.
0: Mm-hmm. So you felt seen at that first, at that first event you attended. Yeah.
2: So I'm
0: curious, Rome. many people find themselves in a similar situation that you describe. So um, as migrant workers experiencing precarious employment and all the challenges that come along with that, including health challenges. But they may not necessarily be fighting these injustices on a bigger scale for a number of reasons. They might be just so busy trying to survive make enough money to send their family back home. So I'm curious for you, what was it about what you were experiencing and seeing that not only led you to say, this is unfair, but then also this is unfair and I have to do something about it?
2: It's the moment of refusal, which is to refuse to say that uh, we will accept that this is just the way that things are, refuse to accept that this is the norm, And refuse to accept that we should live our lives like this. And when it is echoed by others like you, together we can refuse. To accept that things are simply going to be the way they are, there is everything to change. And it's also historically accurate, which is that our people, no matter who, um, you know, we define as our people, our people have liberated themselves before and can do so again. I'm from Korea and we have uh, fought off colonization Mm -hmm. very recently. All of us have stories of how uh, it is that our people, our ancestors, our grandparents, our parents even, um, and even just today ongoing are struggling for change and that it is possible. And that kind of refusal is rooted in a well-peopled and well-historied movement that then is our task to continue. Asking these questions of why is it that things are the way they are and then joining with others to figure out answers together and then come up with a solution or an action plan is kind of just the waves of what it means to just come together and say, we deserve more. And, um, Anything is possible as long as we have our heads and our fists up. It's this moment
0: of refusal that continues to inspire Sarome to fight for migrant justice. But how does Sarome go from being a migrant justice organizer to a migrant worker organizer? This distinction is important, and there are two key turning points in Sarome's journey that inspired her to build migrant power through migrant work. One, the union drive for Foodsters United, and two, Jobandeep Singh Sandhu's arrest. Sirom was part of the incredible story we heard in episode one, where gig workers fought and won against misclassification. As reported by CBC News, Jobandeep Singh Sandhu was an international student who worked as a truck driver. He was arrested during a routine traffic stop because he exceeded the number of hours an international student in Canada is allowed to work each week. Sirom was involved in the fight against his deportation, But unfortunately, he was deported a few years after his arrest. Both experiences allowed Sarom to see work as an important avenue for change. So in 2019, Sarom became a staff organizer at the migrant-led, Toronto-based organization, Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. This is what Sarom does now. She builds collectives with other migrants to fight against injustice in the immigration system by mobilizing for status for all. Next... You'll hear a story from Sarom about the kinds of current challenges that the organization supports migrant workers through. And you mentioned earlier on in our conversation that you have a particular focus on work when it comes to migrant justice. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Why that particular focus on work?
2: So whether you are a migrant or not, we have a common enemy. We share a fight against a privatization and austerity agenda, against increasing temporariness in our workplace, in our schools, um, and uh, increasing precarity. And the only way to improve the situation then is to build directly the power of workers. We have to directly organize, build infrastructure so that we win, um, so that also our community stay permanently organized. And there is a lot of power we have as workers in order to uh, get the changes that we need. And, you know, the stories uh, show themselves that we face a lot of um, injustice, um, but that as uh, workers, we can change this and fight for equal rights, um, fight for dignity and fight for uh, full and permanent immigration status. Can I quickly tell a, a story? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, a group of seven women uh, from Jamaica were working on a strawberry farm in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And in the agricultural sector, um, it's known that strawberry picking is some of the hardest and backbreaking work because you have to be on your knees the whole day. It's also piecemeal work, which means that you only get paid for how many strawberries you are able to to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, they were working for three months every day without a single day off. And in this industry, uh, workers are allowed uh, one day off every six days, unless there is an emergency situation. And in this farm, the employer said that it was an emergency, and our members were forced to work 92 straight days in the heat on their knees. Um, and just from like sheer exhaustion and dehydration, they collapsed and one called an ambulance. They went to the hospital where they were treated with an IV drip. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: two days later, when they got out of the hospital and, you know, returned to work, um, they came back to the farm and their bags were packed. They were being deported. And this is very common practice in um, migrant farm work, as well as, uh, you know, it just this is very common practice. Or this happens regularly to migrant farm workers, care workers, refugees, um, students, um, where the employer has so much power. They were asked to leave and given flight tickets to go back home in the cab that they took when they returned from the hospital. And when they went to the airport, the connecting flight was in Toronto, Mm -hmm. but they uh, together were... Uh, Again, angry at the sheer injustice of it all that they called us. Um, And they've since lost status and have become undocumented. But what's egregious about the situation is that all of this is legal. Because in the eyes of the law, this is legal. And because they are migrants, uh, workers like us have no recourse. In fact, the people who are considered to be breaking the law are the workers. Because we are criminalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that these bad labor laws and unfair immigration uh, rules work in tandem precisely allows for the exploitation of people, allows for employers to abuse workers and deny us basic rights and protections. Um, and, you know, we have members who are healthcare workers as well, uh, members who are migrant student workers who are going to colleges and universities. And this is shared experience. And so then we kind of have to understand that where does our power come from? Our power comes from uh, the fact that we can join together with others like us, be it on our farm or in our community or in our campus, and then come together to say this is a shared experience. And let's fight for uh, change together. And a huge source of where we can, um, a very like fertile ground of where we can advance those changes together is in the workplace. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. That story that you told about the women from Jamaica was almost, you know, unbelievable. But that's something that's happening regularly, right? Can you help me understand, so why were they being deported? Was it because they had to go to the hospital and they couldn't work any longer? What was the reason for that?
2: Exactly. So when migrant farm workers and care workers... um, come to Canada on a closed work permit, which means that it's tied to the employer. They're only allowed to work for, you know, that one farm or that one employer. Um, And what that means is that it gives the employer a lot of power. So speaking up as a migrant means that you risk hunger, Mm. homelessness, Mm -hmm. um, and deportation. Um, And so when they went to the hospital, they were treated disposably to say, okay, well, um, you have to go back. Um, And many of our members have been forced to go back home, have been deported and are unable to come back because they've been blacklisted. And this is far too common. And it's also uh, legal. Hmm. Right. And, you know, we have very little recourse um, in the uh, kind of existing rules to uh change this so instead of accepting that this is the case accepting that we have no recourse what we say is well no we must uh we have a lot of power even outside of these institutions our power is in our hands joined together and that's how we will get changes
0: so in that story that you told essentially the law said that you're no longer able to work therefore you're no longer useful to us exactly and you have to leave.
2: Exactly. It's that revolving door of labor um, that, you know, continues exploitation. And that revolving door is facilitated by uh, the immigration system. So we're seeing, you know, many of us out there, we're seeing how temporariness and precarity is affecting us um, in all parts of our lives.
0: The story that Sarom shared with us about the seven women working on a strawberry farm in Nova Scotia paints an incredibly clear and visceral picture of why immigration status, work and health are linked. The connections between precarious or temporary immigration status and public health are equally as significant. Statistics Canada reported that temporary work permits for migrant workers rose 700% between 2000 and 2021, with most permit holders coming to Canada from the Global South. The National Collaborating Centre for Determinants of Health released an issue brief on decent work, which discusses the connections between health equity and migrant work. In it, authors describe how one way that employers exploit migrant and undocumented workers is by providing substandard wages and working conditions. Women, youth, and Black and other racialized migrants and undocumented workers are at a disproportionate risk of being exploited by their employers, especially through temporary work arrangements. Financial incentives, policy failures, and lack of enforcement of minimum safety standards allow employers to avoid basic responsibilities. This includes avoiding the provision of mandatory employment standards, such as minimum wages, adequate breaks, and emergency days, and the provision of health-enhancing programs like workers' compensation for injury on the job. Next, Sarom and I talk about what keeps her going in this work and advice she would offer to others. So if you could take me back to that early period of organizing for migrant justice, was there ever a time or a moment when you thought, oh, maybe I should stop this work. It's just too difficult. Was there a moment when you felt really defeated?
2: Yes, but what keeps us going is um, the others who we are accountable to and others who kind of hold us up. In organization, there are many times that I... um, am you know walking along and I stumble. I fall. And sometimes I can pick myself back up and continue to walk, even on shaky ankles, shaky knees. But sometimes I stumble and fall and find it difficult to get back up myself. But having people around uh, me, they can pick me up and we can walk together. And when I see somebody else who's like me also stumble, I can also support them. And together, we hold ourselves up arm in arm um, to rise up together.
0: <laughs> can you tell me about a moment when you stumbled and how did you get picked back up?
2: About a year ago, as the Migrant Rights Network had a um, day of action where we marched on Ottawa. Mm-hmm uh nearly um 800 migrant and undocumented people stepped out of the shadows and, and onto the streets and uh marched on Parliament demanding full and permanent immigration status for all
0: mm-hmm.
2: this was uh last July last uh, end July. of okay. July and um right before the March I had gotten news that my grandmother was soon to pass I'm sorry and we had been separated. Um, by this uh, border uh, for um, decades. Mm-hmm. And so that grief and that uh, sense of um, anger, anger at the sheer injustice of um, border violence was overwhelming. But knowing that we were about to make history together and, and um, as migrant and undocumented people march onto Ottawa is what kept me going. Um, And so I think I literally stumbled and literally got back up because there were uh, people to uh, pull me back up. And also I could do the same because uh, many of us have shared a similar experience um, of losing family and not being able to go back home. Many of us during um, COVID have also where the uh, pandemic hit our home countries harder um, lost uh, people in our families but could not go back home and could not be with them um, and are carrying that grief and uh, one way that I have been able to uh, work through that personal grief that is also a shared grief is by joining with other people like me.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. My parents migrated from Ghana many, many years ago. And um, that story that you told about your grandmother, I remember my mom, she she lost her mom while she was in Canada and she wasn't able to get back to Ghana. And just that grief, you know, just it made her question, you know, her decision to come here and be separated from her family. And it's just it's only in, you know, having people around you to lift you back up, right, that you're able to keep going in the midst of that.
2: Exactly. People um, to hold us down and also pick us up so that we can also do the same And also um, share the anger and talk about the injustice that sharpens our um, will to continue to fight for justice. You know, um, today, rights and access to basic protections and services, um, basic things like family unity, are uh, given or denied on the basis of citizenship status. And that largely exploits poor and working class racialized migrants and refugees who are, you know, predominantly from the global south. And, you know, Canada has a multi-tiered immigration system that facilitates this, where some have permanent residency and therefore rights to health care, family unity, freedom from reprisals at work, while others and the vast majority are... uh, temporary or without status and that just continues to engender exploitation which was exacerbated and exposed during covid-19
0: I can imagine that the work you're doing it takes so much energy is there ever a moment where you thought to yourself like deeply that you knew that this is the work that you should be doing so despite the challenges that you face despite when you stumble or you know any pushback you might receive is there a moment that stands out for you in terms of Making you think I am where I should be, I'm doing what I should be doing.
2: Um that moment is uh every day. It's uh, you know, every hour. And we also don't need to have all the answers. Um, you know, there is this important uh quote by uh Paolo Ferrari. Mm,
0: um my favorite.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um there's this quote by uh, Paolo Ferreri where he says, everything you recognize as something important. I think that even though we need to have some outline, I am sure that we make the road by walking. You're saying that in order to start, it should be necessary to start. And this is in mm. conversation with somebody else who uh, answers him and says, I've never figured out any other way to start. In order to start, it should be necessary to start. And whether that means um, starting today or starting in this next hour, it means that we have to create the road by walking. And also the road is all uh, well um, peopled, right? Many have already walked um, this road with us, um, have given us guidelines, um, but you know, when we're in kind of what feels like uncharted territory or we don't know the answers yet, What we do is simply uh, walk together. And that's what keeps me going. And that organizing can look different uh, for everybody. So, what may that mean for you? So, if you're in a workplace, you can regularly start meeting with your coworkers. If you're not unionized, you could start a unionization drive. If you're already in a union, maybe go to union meetings. If you're a student, meet with fellow students at your school. Um, If you're a member of a religious organization, sports team, or any group, start taking action on the things that matter to you and then join with others like you. And, you know, if you are a migrant, um, the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change is a place uh, for you to do that, to gather with others like you to take collective action.
0: Hmm. And for you, I wonder, has your journey in organizing for migrant workers' rights or migrant justice more broadly? been different than what you imagined when you first got involved? So thinking back to that first meeting you went to with No One Is Illegal and your journey over the last while, has that journey been different than what you imagined? That's a great question.
2: I guess I didn't have a uh, kind of set vision of what that journey would look like, but I think what has been unexpected is Just the sheer, just being um, part of and also witness to the sheer power of our people. Um, And that kind of takes me by surprise all the time, uh, which is seeing our members face deportation, right? Right now, we have so many of our members who are fighting removal orders, fighting deportation. But, you know, are being organized, talking to each other to say, let's all go to the boss and say we won't work in these conditions or that we need better uh, housing and so forth. Like that takes me by surprise every time. I think I have learned that there isn't a one set path, but that it's like a kind of a rolling cascade of twists and turns. But at the end, um, we find our power with each other um, and that keeps us going. Um, And so again, this goes back to uh, we make the road by, by walking.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's so powerful.
2: For our listeners
0: who may want to get involved and want to be a part of fighting for migrant workers' rights, how could they do so?
2: Yes, join us. Uh, Join our struggle and let's, um, you know, build up the power of, uh, you know, migrants and as workers uh, together. You can sign the petition at www.statusforall.ca. Um, and we also uh, have regular days of action. And so um, stay um, up to date by joining our uh, mailing list and then, you know, come through to the next action near you. It also looks like, you know, in your union meetings or in your workplace meetings or even conversations with your friends and family to uh, talk about um, the realities of migrants and undocumented people in Canada and our uh, winning strategy and calls for change and to join in um, and to uh, recognize that this is a uh, shared struggle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a little bit about that call? In terms of status
2: for all? What we are saying is that all migrants uh, sh- should uh, get permanent resident status. We all want to live in a fair society. And a fair society is one where everybody has the same rights. And the only way for everyone to have equal rights is to have equal status, uh, which is full and permanent immigration status. So everybody must have health care. That means everybody must have equal status. Everybody must have the ability to be with their families. That means everybody must have equal status. And everybody must have the ability to assert our rights at work. And that means everybody must have equal status. We uh, deserve full and permanent immigration status for all, without exclusion, without exception. Joining me
0: today for a reflective conversation is Dr. Erica DiRuggiero is an associate professor and director of the Centre for Global Health at the Dalhousie School of Public Health in Toronto. Erica brings many hats to this conversation, including her research on decent work and expertise in cross-sectoral action to advance health equity. Erica is also a dedicated mentor, and she's actually on my PhD committee, where she has been a great support. In episode one, we introduced the concept of decent work. Today, we talk about a global approach to decent work. And learn key actions that public health professionals, researchers, and policymakers can take in their practice. And Erica, how did you first become involved in exploring decent work? What has that journey been like for you? I would say,
3: and there are many examples of this, but just in terms of a key influential event back in 2012, so that's over 10 years ago now, there was a very, very tragic fire in Dhaka, in um, Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. in the fashion uh, factory um, in one of the outskirts regions. And I'm sure you've heard about it. And it led to, I think, over 100 deaths and over 200 people being injured. And it was a really deadly fire and one of the most deadliest fires in that country's history. And it did catalyze some, you know, um, reforms to workers' rights um, and safety laws. However, there were a number of things about that event that I became incredibly interested in. First of all, workers in that situation were working under very unsafe and inhumane conditions for a very long time. Their work Mm -hmm. schedules were controlled. They couldn't even leave their stations. And that's why they became trapped in part. And management was... Telling them to ignore the fire alarm and many people couldn't escape. And of course, they were working for very, very little money to produce very cheap products um, for the likes of big global retailers like Walmart. Who, of course, when the fire occurred, you know, took no responsibility and claimed no awareness that garments mm-hmm. were being made in that factory for their distribution. And then there were a number of other factories, um, of course, that then had um, fires as well. But it was sort of a recurring pattern of uh, controlled work environments, mm-hmm. no agency, no dignified work. Financial security was, you know, non-existent. And this really interesting, I think, connection between what is happening, you know, to people over there, quote unquote, um, you know, is inextricably linked to, what happens here, um, because many of the products they were making were for distribution in countries like ours. And of course, this has been enabled by uh, globalization. So that event, but a number of them that followed really was quite pivotal in me trying to understand, well, we're really failing through policy here. And so I would say those are a few of the things that really motivated me to go back and do a PhD and really focused on decent work.
0: In what ways would you argue that decent work is, in fact, a public health issue that we need to pay attention to in Canada? So, of course, work intersects with determinants
3: like income, with gender, and as Saram um, indicated, also rights that many people take for granted, um, but are not um, easily accessed by um, workers, such as right to citizenship, And I think many of these things, and this kind of links back to my interest in policy, by failing to act on these determinants and how they intersect for the public's health, it signals a real failure to deliver on these social goods.
0: You apply a global lens to the work that you do with respect to decent work. Can you talk a little bit about the intersections between those global policy frameworks and what we're seeing at more local levels in the Canadian context. Why is it important to apply a global lens in understanding the issues of decent work? I think
3: it's really, really important because we've come to finally accept that, you know, infectious diseases know no boundaries, right? They transcend Mm -hmm. um, boundaries and what I mean by that country boundaries or borders, Uh, But labor is the same, right? There is a flow of labor within regions of the world. Look at what's happening in South America right now with crises in different countries, and you have this migration to neighboring countries and the kind of pressure that's putting on The crisis in the Ukraine and some of the neighboring uh, countries taking in uh, refugees from that country because of the ongoing war there. Many examples in sub-Saharan Africa around, you know, war ridden areas or floods, you know, or drought that are causing outward migration. There's so many examples and many of uh, people also make their way to Canada, <laughs> and uh, eventually, in some cases, mm-hmm. or other parts of, you know, uh, the U.S. or Europe or wherever. And so, you can't think of labor as oh, it only happens within my jurisdiction. I think it's a very naive thing. And so, to me, that's you know, partly because globalization has influenced the flow of labor markets globally. And back to my example about the fire in Bangladesh. That was a really good example of corporations that are benefiting on the backs of poor workers whose human rights are being violated because of the working conditions under which they were laboring to produce cheap clothing that, you know, in some cases was provided at a cheap cost to the consumer because that's what drives the bottom line yet the markup value for corporations that um, reside elsewhere from those countries and yet benefit off the backs of poor workers that in countries where legislation is not sufficiently well developed and not protective of those workers. And, you know, we're not perfect here either. We've got lots of problems as well. But in other countries, it's, you know, not necessarily any better. Yet we're still responsible or should be uh, accountable. So, those, I think, are examples of how we have to think about these issues through a global lens.
0: Mm-hmm. And something that Sarum discussed was the sense of powerlessness that migrant workers in particular experience as it relates to their work. So I'm curious, how can public health support workers, including migrant workers, to gain power and influence as it relates to their employment and working conditions?
3: I know we're probably, you know, a bit tired about talking about COVID, but let's just reflect on that context just as an example. I think we have seen really good examples of public health um, working with other sectors to advocate for sick leave. I think one of the best examples was when public health authorities, on the one hand, were asking people to self-isolate. But many workers who were in very precarious jobs um, did not have the power (laughs) to self-isolate because Mm -hmm. they didn't actually have the luxury of not going into work. Um, So it was pretty rich for us as public health officials, on the one hand, to ask for that when workplaces or the many places they were working that were, you know, positions that had no social and health benefits. So I think this is an example where public health did lend its voice very deliberately to strongly advocate for changes to sick leave. We did move the needle a little bit on that. You know, I think one of the things to watch is whether we're going to see some positive social innovations that occurred, at least in the policy space, will they be sustained? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think the pandemic brought to light again, it's not a new issue, this idea of basic income or guaranteed income. We saw some experimentation with mechanisms to offset, you know, loss income and loss of jobs because of the pandemic. But again, what are we doing in the policy space? So this is something else I think public health really needs to be at the table for to argue for the public health benefits um, of having stable and financially and decent work. Um, because we know it's there's a strong literature on this, that the relationship between work and health, many different health outcomes, physical health and mental health um, are strongly linked to you know, strong uh, working conditions, as I've described before. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. So you wear many different hats, policy, teaching, research, etc. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the specific roles public health can play as relates to decent work.
3: Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with teaching. I mean, obviously, given my strong interest in this topic, I take many opportunities to talk about it in my classes, um, and not just reflecting on my own research, but the, the work of others. Um, cause I do think, given my interest in agenda setting, which is, you know, one of the areas of policy that I've, um, spent a fair bit of time thinking about, we we need to think about why certain things come on the agenda and fall off the agenda, and then come back on. And I think one of the ways in which to raise attention to these issues is by bringing them up, um, you know, in our classrooms as as teachers, educators, so that we can um, inspire um, our students to also take up some of these things. I would say that um through uh, work in community. Now, I don't work as much at the local level, but certainly colleagues in public health have very strong connections to community-based organizations. And I think this is a really good example of where we have to be very mindful that we're a bit later to the party compared to many other um, groups. And I think Saran's amazing um, account of her journey suggests that the extensive community organizing that has gone on for many, many years before public health has come to the table, we need to lend our voice. We need to also get out of the way and amplify the voices of others.
0: How does public health get out of the way, so to speak, but also does not deflect responsibility in terms of the role it should play in supporting decent work.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was trying to be a bit provocative because I think sometimes sectors swoop in and decide, okay, you know, I'm the point person on this, yet, you know... And inadvertently, not necessarily deliberately, eclipse the very voices that really need to be amplified, Mm -hmm. you know, the voices of marginalized workers, for example. One of the ways I think public health can do that is by working very closely in intersectoral coalitions with community, for community, identify and co-create priority areas. One of the things we can bring to the table also are our skills in monitoring and evaluation and to really bring to light what is not being measured. So an example, you know, I think is of global relevance, and certainly there are efforts to change this. But if you look at, you know, how we tend to measure whether a society is actually doing well overall in terms of providing access to jobs, we look at the unemployment rate, Mm -hmm. you know, and while, you know, no measure is perfect, um, I think it's a really good example of something that is hiding a lot of things that are not measured because many of the configurations of work, be it informal, gig, precarious, undocumented work, actually does not fall into the category of this employer-employee traditional um, arrangement. And so we're not picking up a lot of hidden work, um, through a statistics like that. And while it tells a story, it really decontextualizes, I think, many other stories. So I think meaningful, context sensitive monitoring and evaluation, which also starts with better indicators. Um, that don't just quantify a problem, but also measure inequitable access to working conditions through policies and programs. And there are many, many ways to do that. But I think that's another way that public health working, of course, um, in interdisciplinary teams, because this really cuts across, you know, many sectors outside of help, is another way to do that.
0: And so you're saying it's important that public health first acknowledges that there's been a long history of this work and um, community organizing around this work. And then secondly, it needs to make sure that it's partnering in authentic, real ways to move the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking to public health folks, um, some of the challenges they face in addressing various social determinants of health, including decent work, is that A, they don't see how it's connected to the immediate work that they're doing in terms of their current role. And B, they're also worried about potential consequences that may come from them speaking up or speaking out. And so I'm curious for you, what advice do you have for for both of those things, but primarily for the second one in terms of the risks that public health professionals might perceive to their role if they were to be more vocal about some of these issues that are happening?
3: The advice I would give is that um if there's a feeling there's a threat to your own security and and that level of threat is is a personal one in terms of people's ability to tolerate it cuz some will still do it in spite of that so i don't want to suggest that all people won't jump at the opportunity to work in coalition, because I think sometimes if a public health staff person feels like they can't on their own do this, then to work in coalitions with community groups who have a mandate and um to be advocates for, you know, improving workers' rights, for example. And we've got lots of examples of that, that Saron spoke about many, many examples of community organizing And so I think that's another way to to work in collaboration with other groups and also through other non-governmental organizations and through public health associations as well. I think there are really, really important opportunities.
0: Thanks to Sarome and Erica for sharing their experiences and insights about migrant work, status for all, and decent work. SROM spoke to us about how migrant workers are uniting against an immigration system that negatively impacts migrants' health and well-being. And while we explored the worrying increase of temporariness within the immigration system, we also learned that there is hope in collectives and through the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. We learn from Cerome that a fair society must mean that all peoples living on these lands must have full and permanent immigration status and that public health has an important role to play by lending our data, our voice, and working together with migrant workers. You can learn more about and support Serome's work by visiting MigrantWorkersAlliance.org. With Erica, we discussed the importance of intersectoral action and having a global approach in our public health practice, especially as it comes to labor and health equity. Erica also gave us some great advice about our role as public health professionals. Good data is critical to advancing decent work and advocating through collectives such as public health associations. What's our takeaway? Migrant workers are owed and deserve better. Full and permanent immigration status is an important determinant of health and an important part of decent work.
1: Thanks for listening to Mind the Disruption, a podcast by the National Collaborating Center for Determinants of Health. Visit our website, nccdh.ca, to learn more about the podcast and our work. This episode has been produced by Carolina Jimenez, Bernice Yanful, and me, Rebecca Schiff, with technical production and original music by Chris Perry. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and subscribe. We have more stories on the way of people challenging the status quo to build a healthier, more just world.